there's this great opportunity that exists to serve the rest of the world in their unfulfilled gas need and supply that to them without greatly impacting the price in the U.S. because we just have so much. It's kind of a win-win for everybody. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about liquefied natural gas, transporting it around the world, and how the shale boom is influencing the worldwide market. You're probably familiar with LNG exports. Natural gas is condensed into a liquid and shipped overseas. Simple enough, right? First off, there's a big difference between compressed natural gas and liquefied natural gas. I'd always thought the difference was that CNG was compressed and liquefied natural gas was really compressed, just into a liquid. Not so. The chemists out there listening can explain it better than me, but basically they don't compress natural gas into a liquid the same way you don't compress water into ice. Whereas CNG is actually compressed to about 3,000 PSI, LNG is cooled to about negative 260 degrees Fahrenheit. In that state, what was formerly natural gas is reduced 600 times. By comparison, the volumetric energy density of LNG is about two and a half times greater than compressed natural gas. Still, the liquefied product is only 70% the energy density of gasoline, so you can see why the only way to make it economically feasible for transport is to shrink it to the smallest possible size. That gets us to the facilities needed. These are expensive, primarily because the difficult work of making the gas suitable for transport is done here. Because you're chilling this gas, there are a lot of impurities that are okay for CNG, but deal breakers here. Components like water vapor, mercury, CO2, even naturally occurring hydrocarbons like benzene have to be stripped. Otherwise, they'd freeze and damage the whole facility. You may already know what we collectively call natural gas is actually a gumbo of a few gases. But by the time we get to LNG, it's essentially pure liquefied methane. The whole process of cleaning up natural gas is called pretreatment and requires some sophisticated equipment. I'll put up a great video on the website explaining how all this works. From the pretreatment facility, the clean gas is piped to a liquefaction facility where it is chilled. Our guest today uses a propane refrigerant to help with the cooling process to get it down to that brisk negative 260. By the time it is stored in tanks and staged for ships to take it around the world, the LNG is stored at pressure. Most natural gas types measure natural gas in terms like million BTUs. But because LNG is now a liquid and its BTU value is consistent for the same volume, it's often measured in tons. LNG terminals use million tons a lot for measurement. When it comes to the cost of LNG facilities, the rough rule of thumb is that for every million tons of LNG processed per year, it costs a billion and a half dollars to build the plant. You'll remember back in episode 14, we discussed one of the famous frackers, Sharif Suki, a restaurant owner who founded LNG export company Chenier Energy. You'll remember the company started out as an import terminal, but with the shale boom and the low price of natural gas, the company reworked their terminal in Sabine Pass, Louisiana to export natural gas. And as you can imagine, that required billions in pre-treatment and liquefaction infrastructure. I asked my guest about the unusual risks 
associated with a project like these. When the scope of the project essentially flips within a five-year period, you can see what I mean. There's not that many lists of where these LNG facilities are in the U.S., but the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission keeps a good list. Jeff Merrifield, friend of show from Episode 9, was a FERC commissioner. It says there are nine import three import-export, and three export terminals. However, you look at the list of approved facilities and there are 16 planned for export, zero planned for import. Pretty confident about the nation's prospects as a net energy exporter. What I also found interesting, and we discussed this with my guest, is that of these 30-plus facilities listed, only two are listed as being owned by super majors. You know, the Exxon, Chevrons, and BPs of the world. Many are owned by much smaller companies like Chenier. FERC also had some great data on global LNG prices. And looking at this chart, you can see why investors and budding operators are eager to dive into the export market. At the time of this episode, the price in the U.S. was about $2.75, $9.75 in the U.K., and about $11.50 in South America, India, China, and Korea. As our guests point out, and as I've illustrated earlier, there's a little effort getting the gas to those markets, but the premium certainly makes up for a lot of effort. And finally, listeners may pick up on the fact that I try to keep these episodes evergreen. In other words, I don't discuss too many news-related items that could date the shows. I was tempted to discuss world events with today's guests, but they're not running for Congress. They're more focused on running a business that will sustain for several decades of regimes and administrations. However, I couldn't resist pointing out that as a net exporter of natural gas, the U.S. is poised to spread this liquid diplomacy all over the world and give our allies another supplier when other mineral rich suppliers turn out to be bad actors lng isn't just good business it's four billion cubic feet of liquefied liberty Our guest today is Aaron News, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Development for Freeport LNG, based in Houston, Texas. Freeport is one of the first and largest exports in the country. Freeport was founded in 2002, and like Chenier, its plan was to import natural gas. That import terminal was completed in 2008, but by then the shale boom was underway, and what the country really needed was a way to export the stuff. Freeport currently has three trains under construction that should all be operating by 2019. output should come close to 15 million tons per year. When it leaves its Texas port, the LNG will be sent to Japan, South Korea, and the UK. It wouldn't be a stretch to call Aaron a former Wall Street guy. He worked as a managing director of a New York capital firm where he led the team that raised the money for this project. In 2015, he joined the company in-house. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron News. Aaron News, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Development for Freeport LNG. And Aaron, first question, LNG ports to build them are slow, expensive, sometimes risky, and arguably very unique projects. How does a company like Freeport LNG cut through those challenges and get a port built? Some of the characteristics that you noted are arguably true. To get the proper context, you need to think about the history of the LNG industry and what LNG projects have generally been. They tend to have been fully integrated projects that go from the upstream source of the gas all the way to the export of them wherever they may be. So getting them on the ship and in some cases even the ship itself. Definitionally, that is a much greater scope than the LNG projects in the U.S. 
class have tended to be. There's often compared to, at least in the financing community, is that these projects are not that different than power plants. There's off-takers that pay for that plant to be available. You're building a discrete piece of infrastructure. It has ample supply of what it needs, in our case, gas. We're down in, quote-unquote, pipeline alley, along with a lot of the rest of these projects, where pipeline after pipeline connect or come close to connecting and are only doing a small adder to the plant. So what did we need to do? We needed to build just the LNG plant itself. Although these facilities are billions of dollars, you've narrowed down the scope of what you're doing here as much as possible, right? That is a good way to explain it. So everything I just said being true, there's still huge projects with lots of complexity and lots of risk. But the company was full of people with a lot of experience in the LNG industry and project development. They hired good advisors to help them structure the project so that raising all of the money was going to be feasible. The reason the super majors have no problem doing this kind of thing is because they have these balance sheets that are absolutely massive. Capital is not a constraint for them. When you're a chenier back in that day or ourselves, you need to be able to raise the money based on the merits of the project itself. And this is the summary I remember learning when I first started in the project industry. Make sure the risks are always held by the best party to bear them. That enables you to be able to go to the sources of capital and say, look, we've boxed our risks. And on that basis, you should be comfortable lending to us. You said you are building your facility in what you call Pipeline Alley. There's other companies building facilities further south, almost to Brownsville, Mexico border. You're building yours much closer to Houston. You think it'd be a no-brainer to build every LNG facility in the area you're in. Are there any unique challenges building in that area? Is it crowded? What have you encountered with your site? Yeah, it's super crowded. There's a lot of different points. And what I'd say is when you compare LNG in the Gulf Coast of the U.S., yeah, we're really in Pipeline Alley and Brownsville might not have the same level of connectivity, but compared to what Nigeria had when they developed their project, Brownsville is as connected as they come. We're in what's called a non-attainment zone for air emissions. Hmm. We had to make sure that for our air permits, we were compliant with all the different rules and regulations being closer to Houston. So that required some novelty in the technical design of the project. Our compressors and turbines, they're electric drive. We're going to have some of the largest motors in the LNG industry running our plant. Can't imagine. Which is different than what's typical. What's typical gas turbines, we couldn't burn that in our location relative to Houston. And there's some big opportunities there. Electric drive motors should have better availability, less downtime. We're pretty excited to get those going. Aaron, how critical is it that a project like this have a foreign customer in place before the work begins? Is that where you start or can you find a customer later? No, you cannot. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're Shell or BP and you're developing one of these projects, yes, you can. You're taking on the LNG as a quote unquote equity position, and then you will sell that for the highest margin to whoever will buy it at any given point in time. If you're us, you can do that with a portion of the LNG, but you need some foundational customers to be able to get to the spot where you can take your final investment decision and raise financing. Now, one part of the question was a foreign customer, which is an interesting point. So yep, all the customers of the US LNG projects are foreign. But what's interesting is on the Northeast, they've got a regas terminal that I think at time 
times in the winter will sometimes take spelling I don't know if that still takes place, but it was not that long ago that it did. Puerto Rico is another example. Puerto Rico needs LNG. There's a law called the Jones Act. What the Act says is everything's got to be done on a U.S. ship. There's not really a U.S. LNG shipbuilding industry. To go from U.S. port to U.S. port, you need to have U.S. ships, and that's very challenging. So that's why typically everything you see is foreign customers. You mentioned super majors and how they're vertically integrated and some of the advantages they have and also why those projects were so enormous. But I'm curious why super majors have not really spearheaded much of the recent LNG shipping exports. The first LNG exports that were really on people's radar were, as you mentioned, Chenier Energy. Their founder, Shirisuki, was a restauranteur at one point, wasn't even an oil and gas man. So what does that say about the industry? It just seems like there's a lot of players that aren't traditional oil and gas companies that seem to get into this? Why is it their game? These super majors, for lack of a better term, energy conglomerates that look to get value for their shareholders out of every different aspect of the energy industry. On these big international LNG projects, a lot of the value there is in the upstream development and then monetizing that gas. In the U.S., it's not really the game with the shale boom and the fracking, etc. The majors certainly own stake stuff, but it's also owned by a lot of different independent oil oil and gas companies. What was being developed in the U.S. was more discrete infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say the majors won't eventually get into it in the U.S. ExxonMobil and Gutter Gas have a project that they're developing that may or may not move ahead. In the U.S., there are billions and billions of dollars projects that need to be done well and that need to be done right. But the barriers to entry to do the project are less than what they would have been in Nigeria or something like that, where it just had to be a super major. Speaking of Chenier, they started off as an import then famously turned into an export facility. Have LNG developers like yourself built in contingencies where a facility could import for some reason? Or is it still just all export? When Chenier developed themselves as a regas terminal, and we had done the same, we were actually the first ones to do it. Mm -hmm. We built up all the infrastructure to do that. That had exactly the same structures as we do today for export, for imports. All the infrastructure was there. So we did, from an infrastructure perspective, is we just kind of turn it around and built everything for export. Now, export's a lot more expensive than import in terms of what you need to build and the capital cost to do so. But that's essentially what's done. So that that infrastructure remains and exists within the Chenier complex and within ours. You know, given the state of the shale boom, I don't expect it to be used, but it's there. I try to do the show for everyone, you know, and kind of do this on a fifth grade level. This might be a little bit of a rudimentary question, but is it as simple as it's in this country's best interest to export because we can get a premium on natural gas, correct? Yep, we get a premium on that, you could say. What's important is we can do that without meaningfully increasing the cost of gas locally in the U.S. because we just have so much from both a natural resource and an efficiency of our production perspective. There's just so much that we are best placed from a trade perspective to do that. If we didn't do that and all this gas was being produced in the U.S., gas would be super cheap. It could arguably get below the marginal cost of production for folks, then they'd turn it off. And basically, gas would only ever get to a price that merits exactly enough production to serve the demand that exists here, which would presumably be a very low price. But 
there's this great opportunity that exists to serve the rest of the world in their unfulfilled gas need and supply that to them without greatly impacting the price in the U.S. It's kind of a win-win for everybody. And you mentioned your Asian customers, Japan, South Korea. A lot of times you look at what the prices are for natural gas around the world, and those are usually the most expensive. Are there other markets that are lucrative like that, or is that where you want to send your gas? Moves around. Yeah. Moves around. One of the reasons it's more expensive there, right, is they don't have any, and there's infrastructure costs to get it there. Like we talked about, these facilities are billions and billions of dollars. They need to get remunerated, forget even profit. They just just need to get remunerated to pay back the cost of the infrastructure. Then there's the power to produce the LNG, that power cost. Then there's the shipping cost to actually get it there. Just because gas here is three bucks, and let's say gas there is eight bucks, that's not $5 of premium. That's $5 of some maybe premium, but of cost, just like how if you order something on Amazon and you have to pay shipping, there is a cost to the shipping. That's not just a premium you're paying. Where is the most lucrative place to make the most money on your LNG changes, depending on whether or not it was a super cold winter in Europe relative to Japan, whether or not there is any sort of political drama going on between the Russians and the Europeans at any given point in time, and what that means for European gas supply. People's different climate initiatives. So in Europe, they're going through a process now of working to get as green as possible and transitioning as much as possible to renewables, but that'll take time. But in the meantime, they want to do everything they can to stop burning coal, to turn off their nukes, and that'll leave a deficit that can really only get fulfilled by gas-fired power plants. That'll increase the demand for LNG. There's a lot that goes into it in the global supply and demand of gas, and then what region needs it most at any given point in time, and you have to work through the relative shipping costs of moving it from A to B, and therefore what market would be most lucrative at any given point in time. Right. And I don't mean to be a downer here, but is there ever a risk that prices around the world would equilibrate to the point where LNG exports from the United States would not make as much sense? Do you feel pretty confident that we have a nice little margin that we can play in for the foreseeable future? So does that risk exist? For sure. In fact, the last two, three years, the prices in Asia, for example, until the last eight to 12 months, that it didn't make sense at every point to be actually transporting LNG from the U.S. to Japan. There'd be points in time where that's the case. But in the big picture, in the long term, you've got an abundant supply in the U.S. that will essentially always keep gas prices here very low. And that is arguably the single biggest determinant in terms of what the max all-in delivered price to any market would be from the U.S. to wherever will be what the U.S. gas price is. And then you've got an ever-growing demand for gas internationally. In Europe, for the reasons I just discussed, in Asia, because China continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and their LNG demand is far outstretched what anyone could have possibly projected as they, similar to Europe, trying to move from coal-fired power generation to gas-fired while simultaneously also just growing the amount of power generation they have. The demand and the growth of the demand there is extraordinary. And then you have all the rest of the places in the world that continue to emerge and grow and need more power. So in the long run, at least as long as I'll be around, I don't see that as a trend. And the other thing here, from a contractual perspective, these things are not structured that way, at least the US LNG projects. They're structured where all the contracts are take or pay Mm -hmm. with very reputable counterparties. You as an infrastructure provider, 
you're getting paid regardless. Yeah, that's good security. Aaron, it feels like oil and now LNG gets roped into a lot of international political discussions. Personally, I think American exports like these can be a stabilizing force. Do you think that exports can play that role? How do you see LNG playing a role internationally in situations like that? Yeah, I agree fully with what you said. There's a lot of our allies that we can help because we can provide a lot of these guys an enhanced level of energy security. Just like how we pre-shale boom was trying to figure out how to best get ourselves energy security. Now we've got it within our own borders. Mm-hmm. We can help with that, whether it's Eastern Europe or even to a degree Western Europe and Asia. That's absolutely something that I think USLNG is well-placed to do. We hear a lot about LNG or oil and gas exports balancing trade deficits, and you said you're an economics guy. Explain to folks at home who really don't understand, how does that work? How does a private company exporting oil and gas balance trade deficits? The most basic way to explain it, and the economics degree was 20-some-odd years ago, so so bear with me, but um, (laughs) U.S. dollars are flowing in instead of flowing out. Mm-hmm. to pay for stuff. And to whom do we owe money versus who owes us money? We, as a country, were importing a lot of energy historically. That obviously hurt the trade balance. Now we'd be exporting it. These things all interrelate and get to be a little bit politically complex, perhaps. And I'm not going to go there. The shortest and most basic answer to your question is people are paying us instead of us paying people. So that reduces the trade deficit. Yeah. Let's use our time machine here. What do LNG exports look like in 20 years? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the, um, I think 20 years from today, I believe U.S. exports will still be very competitive. I believe the thesis for U.S. LNG will still be accurate as we continue to find more and more and more gas in the U.S. I think demand will continue to grow internationally. To one of your earlier questions, I think the LNG industry, as it grows and grows and grows, I do think it'll become more commoditized. The infrastructure investments around LNG and what it requires to do them make it such that I personally believe I do see an ever-growing commodity market growing for LNG right alongside it. I think it's interesting to see, do we think that the United States will still be in the position we're in right now, where we're the leaders in this fracking boom? Are they going to start fracking off of Japan? Yeah, look, I'm 37. So 20 years ago, I was just going to college. So when I think about things 20 years from now, it's hard to have that scope. But yeah, who knows where things will go? 20 years ago, there wasn't the fracking boom. So who would have known? what happened. Barely 10 years ago. Exactly. All right, Aaron News, Freeport LNG, thank you so much for your time. You got it. No problem. It's my pleasure. That was Aaron News, Senior VP of Strategy and Development for Freeport LNG, a Houston-based LNG operator. I mentioned Freeport has three trains under construction. Last month, they announced a binding agreement with Japan's Sumitomo Corporation for Train 4, which the company says will begin operations in 2023. I want to thank Aaron as well as Heather Brown on Freeport's communication team for helping to set this up, and Christian Goff at Pure Energy PR for making the introduction. This is now the third episode Christian has helped me with. She and I go back to my clean coal days, and it's great to have friends like this who can help open doors. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. I spent a lot of time researching LNG for this episode, so be sure to check out tons of pictures and videos at energy-cast.com and on Instagram at host 
energy. Be sure to leave a positive review on iTunes. It helps get the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 44. Be sure to join us next week when we interview the CEO of the world's foremost nuclear fusion company. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. Thank you.